Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, if there is anything that will spark a spontaneous debate, if not an outright argument, it is a discussion involving politics, even amongst believers. As followers of Christ, what should be our attitude and our involvement with politics? It has been said that religion and politics don't mix. But is that really true? Can we have political views outside the considerations of our Christian faith? The answer is no, we cannot. The Bible gives us two truths regarding our stance towards politics and government. That's correct, Jimmy. The first truth is that the will of God permeates and supersedes every aspect of life. Second, we must grasp the fact that our government cannot save us, only God can. That is so true, Rick. And today on the program, we will figure that out as we go to our broadcast partners to help us to understand what in the world is going on. And that's according to God's word. So, Rick, let's get started with Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have our expert in geopolitical affairs, Ken Timmerman, with us. He's an author and analyst. You can find out more about him by going to KenTimmerman.com. He joins us once again from his home in France. Ken, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me on, uh, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Well, we've got uh, quite a bit to get to, so we'll start with uh, a story that we talked about in recent weeks, and it's the North Korean missile, their uh, advancements that they have made. And now there are reports coming out that Russia could have been helping them in their development of these weapons. Well, that's right. And, you know, as we discussed last week, I mentioned that this is a new solid fuel ballistic missile. And the significance of that is that you do not have to fuel it with liquid fuel before you fire. So you put it in a silo or you have it on a rail mobile launcher or you have it on a road mobile launcher and it just goes and there's no warning. So intelligence cannot detect hours ahead of time before a launch, which you can do with a liquid fuel missile. So it's a very significant, very, very significant development. And I mentioned last week, there are two sources of that fuel. It's Russia or China. And we don't know which one at this point, but just this past week, a U.S. missile expert, Ted Postal, a left-wing expert at Harvard, if I'm not mistaken, who was a very dedicated opponent to all missile defense under President Reagan and ever since, but he believes it's a copy of a Russian missile, the SS-27, the Topol-M, their latest intercontinental solid fuel missile. It may be so. I think that more research needs to be done on this. But one thing is crystal clear, Rick, it's crystal clear. North Korea could not have built this missile alone. So either the Chinese helped them or the Russians helped them. Now we have one expert who's saying it was the Russians who did it. Well, one of the consequences of the Ukraine crisis and the war with Russia is that the West and especially the United States has isolated Russia. And what this has done, it seems to me, has driven them to make uh, their allies, those relationships even stronger and tighter. One of those relationships, we've talked about it in the past, is Iran. And Iran is helping Russia build drones, aren't they? They are. And they have already built a drone factory in Russia, in Tatarstan. And now the Russians are talking about rebuilding that factory and modernizing that factory with more up-to-date manufacturing technologies so they will be able to have 
something like 6,000 of these attack drones by the summer of 2025, that's in two years from now, they will be able to essentially quintuple the production of drones that they've got now. That would be pretty dramatic if the war in Ukraine is still going on. But you're absolutely right. We are seeing this axis of authoritarian regimes between Russia, Iran, China, communist China, North Korea. And that is really the big geopolitical takeaway of this past year, is that those four countries are coming closer and closer together, working together militarily, economically. They're carving out separate economic spheres, trade spheres, and uh, they are bypassing the U.S.-dominated financial system and financial transfer system, which is extremely significant. So they can conduct trade, build factories, import technologies, export weapons without us in the West able to do anything about it. Certainly is the dominant story. Regular listeners of this program have heard us talk about it quite a bit, but this aligning of these nations certainly has escalated over the last year. Well, uh, one of the reasons that Russia and Vladimir Putin gave for starting the war is they said that NATO expansion forced their hand, so to say. Well, NATO has been in the news this week with some controversial statements concerning Ukraine and Russia. One of the NATO military officials said, well, the Ukrainians could in one scenario, they could give up territory to the Russians in order to end the war. And once the war is ended, Ukraine could join NATO. Now, remember, we've talked about this a number of times. NATO officials have said Ukraine cannot join NATO as long as there's an active war going on, because that would involve NATO in an active war against Russia. So they want to find some way of ending this war to therefore be able to bring Ukraine into NATO. The problem is these mistakes were made at a public conference this past week. The official in question, his name was Gene Jensen. He was the NATO chief of staff. He had to walk back the comments. There's no way that this war is going to end without Ukraine abandoning some territory. The Russians are not going to give up. And I think the Ukrainians are going to run out of young men and they're going to run out of Western countries willing to send weapons and spend from their treasury for an end point, which is very unclear. It is very unclear that Ukraine is going to remain intact as a sovereign nation, including Crimea and including the Donbass. That is absolutely not clear at this point. And we are continuing to spend money, treasure, and, and perhaps soon the blood of our young men and women for that unclear objective. I don't think that's going to be a big winner in the West. Well, we are by no means actually supporters of the brutal dictator or Russia, but we have to look at this situation realistically, or at least that's how I felt. Well, that's right, Rick. But new information has come out that the CIA director in the United States, William Burns, when he was the ambassador plenipotentiary to Moscow between 2004 and 2006, that he was the one who had Vladimir Putin's ear and actually convinced Putin to change his attitude towards NATO. Up until that point, Putin had been pro-NATO. He was talking about joining NATO. And once Bill Burns got his ear, he's completely flipped, became anti-NATO, and launched his first transnational uh, invasion of Georgia in 2008 and then ultimately of the Crimea in 2014. And now Bill Burns is the U.S. CIA director. Remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He was the one who went to see Putin in November 
2021, just before the invasion. We don't know what they said, Rick, but we see the results. Well, Ken, as we continue to look at that, you very interesting fact you brought up there, actions have consequences, actions done in the early 21st century. And if we relate that to the current Biden administration, we look at this week was the anniversary of probably the foreign policy event that set the tone for the Biden administration over the last two years, and that was the disastrous Afghanistan withdrawal. There's no way to overstate the uh, impact that this had, is there? Uh, there's no way to overstate it. And uh, that uh, withdrawal, the disaster of that emboldened Putin, it has emboldened the Iranians, it certainly emboldened the Taliban. They still have Americans captive in Afghanistan. The United States government just paid $6 billion to release five American hostages in Iran. And that is clearly going to embolden the Iranian regime to take more hostages. These are bad policies. And you have to wonder, Rick, Who is really in control? Is it the deep state? People like Bill Burns, who were trying to really diminish the United States. They wanted to see embolden Russia, see a larger Russia, a larger China, embolden those powers to challenge American military hegemony. That seems to be what the goal of the deep state has been for the past 30 years. We are looking through a glass darkly, to paraphrase St. Paul. And we cannot see clearly what the deep state is doing, but we can, from time to time, walk in their footsteps and follow those footsteps and see the actions that they've taken. And that's what we try to do on this program. Certainly is. And also another thing that we do on this program is try to put things in perspective. We look at what's taking place in the world today, relate it to Bible prophecy, but put it in a political and historical perspective as well. You were able to be involved in a unique event this week there in France, the other D-Day. They were commemorating the 75th anniversary of that. Could you tell us a little bit about what they are calling the other D-Day and the importance of it? It's the south of France. It's what Churchill called Operation Dragoon. Uh, the original name was Operation Anvil, but Churchill said he was dragooned into it. He did not want to commit British and American forces to landing in the south of France. He wanted everything to focus on the war on Germany, and Churchill was wrong because within about three weeks, those forces that landed, and I went to all these commemorations, uh, four or five of them actually, it was extraordinary here this past week. Those troops, the 450,000 American troops and French troops, French African troops, Senegalese troops, countries that were French colonies at the time, sent their forces to fight side by side with French soldiers in a reinvigorated free French army. They came into the south of France, from Marseille and Toulon, close to Nice, and drove up within a single day. They got 20 miles into the interior, and within three weeks, they managed to join forces with the D-Day forces in Normandy up in the center of France and move on towards Germany. This was really a game changer in World War II. It is very rarely mentioned in the history books. I've been really blessed here the past 20 years to have taken part in these ceremonies in Raguignon. I was there with the American ambassador, who was really remarkable. She actually spoke her speech in French, and she did not ridicule herself in doing so. I was proud at that point to be an American with that ambassador, 
who did not make a fool of herself in this audience. <laughs> well, Ken, as always, we appreciate the perspective that you bring to this program. Thank you for all that you do. Know that you'll be leaving France soon, so safe travels, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much, Rick. God bless. Great job as always, Ken. we got to take a break, and when we come back, our Middle East News Update with David Dolan, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Rince Kramer with Mission Network News. A mob in the Punjab province of Pakistan torched 32 churches and several homes in a Christian neighborhood. The attacks were sparked on Wednesday by a false blasphemy accusation. Greg Kelly with World Mission says it may not be over. Pakistani Christians are afraid more attacks are being planned in other cities. The government has arrested nearly 150 people from the mob, but is it enough to stop further attacks? You can support Pakistani Christians with World Mission. We'll connect you at missionnews.org. And Jesus set people free from demonic oppression while walking this earth. He's still in the freedom business today. Hartford Rans Nazanin Bagistani describes a woman who recently called the ministry's 24-7 prayer line. She practiced witchcraft, and demons were tormenting her family. After speaking with counselors and hearing the gospel, the woman and her daughters gave their hearts to Christ. Pray for growth as they study God's Word. Mission Network News is service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is our Middle East news update, a time when we look at news coming out of Israel, but also all over the Middle East. And to do that, we have a man that was a journalist in Israel for over 30 years, Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Rick. And I know it's two years since your father's passing, uh, and uh, we think a lot about him and remember that. Well, thank you so much for that. We talked about it a little bit last week, but you know, I do know that he counted you as a good friend, and I'm sure he would be very happy that you continue on the program with Jimmy and I. Well, David, as we begin our report this week, let's take a look at what's going on in Israel. We have been keeping tabs on the judicial reform, new developments this week, including the opposition calling for a unity government. Now, this is a little bit confusing, and it might get a little weedy, but could you explain to us currently what's going on with the judicial reform in the protest, and especially what this means for when they say they're having a call for a unity government? Well, to start with that, it's a member of one of the opposition parties only so far that's calling for a national unity government, but several other members of his party have said they would support that. And they say, you know, that the judicial reforms are are controversial, et cetera, but we have to keep in mind that we still have Iran threatening us. We still have many other issues we need to deal with, and this isn't a time to be quibbling. 
Of course, this comes as we've had stepped-up demonstrations by groups against the judicial reforms at the homes of several members of the government that live in Judea and Samaria. One of them, Simcha Rachman, is the legislator that is the head of the Knesset Law and Justice Committee. He's a Likud member. But he put forward the legislation that was passed uh, late last month against the so-called reasonableness clause that the Supreme Court uses to sometimes to throw out laws the government passes, saying it's unreasonable, whatever they've passed. So they've been outside his home, and he's in a community, Panay Kadem, that is one of the communities in Judea and Samaria that is not legal up until now, hasn't been legalized by the government, but he's attempting and others are attempting to get it done. The opposition says that he's only pushing all of this so that uh, Jews can take over more parts of Judea and Samaria. They've also been outside the home of Finance Minister Basil Smotrich, who is also a strong proponent of the judicial reforms, and National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir, the same. They uh, have been condemning the protesters, the so-called hilltop youth. These are young uh, Orthodox Jews that live in Judea and Samaria, sometimes on hilltops that they've taken over without formal government approval. And they say these people are causing a lot of trouble. So again, we see that the conflict over judicial reform is moving more into the area of the issue of Judea and Samaria and Jews living there and Jews Jewish rights to be there. Of course, we had President Biden in the United States condemn the judicial reform process very strongly. And he alleged that under the new government, Jews are just setting up settlements wherever they want and they're able to do that. Well, that is not at all the case. There's still a process of legalization and going through various committees, but in the past, there have been several of these committees that were established without approval, and they're now trying to get those approved. So that's the situation there. Well, David, you talked about these protests, and there are many that are concerned that this is going to hurt Israel's military readiness because there are reservists that are saying they won't allow themselves to be called up, even pilots that say they won't fight. This is something that is concerning, and uh, the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley has taken an interest in this. Yes, Rick, he actually was supposed to be in Israel in June, but the Wagner Rebellion in Russia postponed that, but he's coming next week to Israel. He's Expected to meet with the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, the IDF chief of staff, Herzi Halevi, and maybe Prime Minister Netanyahu. That hasn't been announced, but it's said that he will be discussing mainly uh, American concerns that the Israeli military is being weakened by these protest movements. Of course, we've had around 10,000 reserve soldiers, some of them officers, that say they will not serve if this uh, reform movement continues. And in fact, Rick, on Thursday, the Army announced that two senior Navy commanders, both brigadier generals, were being disciplined because they said they would refuse to serve if uh, these reforms continue. One of them was given some discipline and the other is expected to in the next few days. Now, these guys are over the age of service, so they really don't legally have to serve, but they play vital roles as reserve leaders, uh, brigadier generals, if there is active conflict. They don't otherwise uh, serve in the military, but they're ready to go at any time. So Lloyd Austin, the U.S. Uh, Secretary of Defense, has expressed concerns 
about this. And actually, the Israeli Strategic Affairs Minister, Ron Dermer, who many may remember was the Israeli ambassador to the U.S. Uh, for many years, he's U.S. born, he uh, led a delegation this week to uh, Washington to meet with senior officials, Jake Sullivan and others, and he had a meeting with Anthony Blinken, the uh, Secretary of State in the United States, and that was to discuss these judicial reforms and the status of the military. But also his goal was said to be to strengthen U.S.-Israeli relations in light of President Biden's strong comments against the government, calling it the most extreme government in Israel's history and other things. Israel's also concerned about this recent deal with Iran that uh, five American Iranians will be released back to the United States in exchange for uh, $6 billion in oil revenues that South Korea owed Iran and hadn't paid under U.S. instructions. Uh, the Israelis have protested that, uh, Netanyahu saying that this money will free up other money to be used in nefarious ways in the region. So all of those are issues that they're apparently discussing uh, in Washington. And of course, the Saudi-Israeli uh, reconciliation talks that are ongoing that the U.S. is sponsoring is certainly another topic being discussed. Uh, and uh, we just heard that Ibrahim Raisi, the Iranian uh, leader, president, has been invited to Saudi Arabia. So the Israelis are concerned about that, all those things, uh, issues between the U.S. and Israel. Well, they certainly are. And of course, the internal political situation in Israel goes on against the backdrop of the situation, especially with Iran and Iranian proxies around the Middle East. They've made it their state of goal to destroy Israel, to get rid of the Jewish state. Uh, if you could, we have talked about Israel and what's going there uh, politically internally. Let's go and expand it to the region a little bit. Iran, a major player in the Middle East and a, and a, and a major adversary of Israel, has essentially shifted their strategy. And, and I wanted you to talk about that a little bit. They are renewing their uh, relations with uh, Saudi Arabia. They are taking on different strategies, but they're still Israel's sworn enemy, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. They're not doing anything uh, that's positive towards Israel or the United States. Of course, they've boarded five oil vessels in the last six months uh, that weren't theirs. And the U.S. has sent additional troops in the last few weeks to the region to actually board some of those tankers and guard against them being seized. So the tensions with the U.S. and Israel are still very high. But as you suggest, they're on what many are calling a charm offensive with the Arab world. They've restored relations with the Saudis, as I said. They said they would help to intervene in the war in Sudan. They have um, done a deal with the United Arab Emirates. They've actually convinced them to send some of their Navy ships out with Iranian patrols. Now, of course, the U.S. has a naval base in the area there, and they're quite concerned about that. They're stepping up ties with Bahrain, with Oman, and they're trying to establish full diplomatic ties with Egypt. 
So this is different because they were fairly hostile against the Sunni Arabs, but of course they're also backing Hamas and Islamic Jihad, as we've discussed many times, and those are Sunni Muslim groups. So they're a Shiite force. The tensions between the Shiites and the Sunnis have been intense over the centuries. They've fought many wars. They fought battles in Lebanon in recent decades. They're two sides, but they've obviously see some merit in trying to produce, as it were, some carrots instead of just sticks when it comes again to the Arabs, but nowhere near that with Israel or the U.S. that they still call the great Satan and the little Satan. Well, David, so much taking place in the Middle East, Israel specifically, and lots going on there politically, but uh, all over the Middle East, and it's all interconnected, all related. Well, we appreciate what you do to keep our listeners informed about what's going on, and we will be calling on you again soon to give us a new Middle East News update. Thank you so much. I look forward to it, Rick. God bless. Great job as always, David. I'm reminded of Psalm 83. This is a very important psalm in the last day scenario. This is found in Bible prophecy, combining this chapter along with Daniel chapter 11, verses 40 to 45, and Ezekiel 38. It will give you an understanding of how the nations will align themselves against the Jewish state of Israel in the last days. We are living in Psalm 83. These nations mentioned, plus those mentioned in Ezekiel 38, Daniel 11, are making ready for their attack on Israel. This attack takes place in the first six months of the seven-year-long tribulation period after the body of Christ, Christians have departed earth at the rapture. The rapture must be very close at hand. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll have Israel Madad and Paul Scharf right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible Prophecy Student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we are examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Coming up, Israel Madad and Paul Scharf. But before we get started, let me just remind you, in Ezekiel 37, 11, it states that the bones in the dry valley are the whole house of Israel. That means representative of all 12 tribes have been coming back into the land of their forefathers, even though they are coming in unbelief, as the text states they should. Therefore, the passage pertaining to two Jewish states during the tribulation period that will become one state again at the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he will cleanse the Jew and they will be his people and he will be their God. That's verse 23. The two sticks represent the two Jewish states, Israel and Judah. 
This prophecy is also revealed in Malachi chapter 2, Jeremiah 3.18, Ezekiel 35.10, where it refers to two nations. Now that's the prophecy. The current events that play into this scenario are many. For a number of years, this prophetic concept has been discussed among the religious Jews. The former Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon told former U.S. President George W. Bush that Israel was on the verge of civil war, Jew against Jew. Rick, let's go to Israel Madad and find out where we are on the latest on this. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I've got Winky Madad with us. He's a frequent guest on the program. He lives in Shiloh. He's the former mayor of Shiloh. He knows about history, politics, and he comes on here regularly to talk to us about what's going on in Israel. Winky, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on. You know, at my age, most things are former. <laughs> That's right. Well, your age comes with a lot of wisdom. I know that too. And perspective, you know, because you can put these things to perspective. So we appreciate your age, Winky. Well, let's start off with that. If I'd like for you to put this in perspective for us. About every two or three weeks, we talk to you and we talk about what's going on, especially with this judicial overhaul, the quote-unquote challenge to Israel's democracy, dividing the nation. If I could, from your perspective there, can I get a update? What is going on now? Where do we stand? Well, we stand that the government basically has won the first round, okay? Not resoundingly. They passed one element out of about four, I think, of the uh, declared plan of judicial reform, which means bringing the judicial authorities from the Supreme Court on down, and the institutions they set up, including, for example, the very special position of the legal advisor to the government, in line with democratic principles, and evening out the relationships between the three basic institutions of government, which is the legislature, the judiciary, and the government. Now, it's not exactly the same as the United States. I don't want to be caught out on that. True. However, the court has run away with a lot of things. What has happened, though, is that the opposition now is using every single issue that over the past 50 years or more has at one time or another divided up Israel in any small way. For example, men and women riding together in buses in ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods, okay? So for those not watching the news, uh, that's my job here, right? Uh, yesterday, a group of people demanding that the buses be, can I use the word, non-segregated or desegregated, and of course it doesn't refer to racial differences, but in terms of religious and less religious, all right? And they had women singing on the bus, which ultra-Orthodox men really don't like, and it wasn't very nice, and you saw pictures of them covering their ears. They can be very annoying. And on Friday, for example, uh, the opening of the new underground and above-ground railway from Petach Tikva to Bat Yam going through Tel Aviv, they announced that they're going to be disturbing services. You know, in other words, issues, they're using things that are not connected with judicial reform or anything the government is doing and wants to do. It's just tearing away at the government's uh, stability and peace of mind and, of course, increasing pressure on uh, the armed forces to get involved in some way or another right now on reservists, but who knows what's going to happen. 
Well, Winky, an example of this kind of extreme protest, I have heard that there have been calls by the former prime minister of Israel, Ehud Barak. Uh, essentially, he's advocating for a coup. Basically, anything goes to get rid of the current government and especially Prime Minister Netanyahu. You are absolutely correct. I'll be very brief. Already three years ago, we have a Zoom recording of Barack at that time, for the old timers on the, on this program between you and me, right? You knew that three years ago there were protests on Balfour Street, which was the prime minister's residence, when the first criminal charges began to come out. And he said, no, we shouldn't zero in on the charges, probably thinking that maybe they're not really charges and he's not really a criminal, but talk about democracy. So there was already then three years ago the idea of Israel is not democratic under Netanyahu was the theme. They lost the elections last November. And already in December, before they announced the judicial reform or any parts of it, they already had meetings how to organize demonstrations. And my last point is anybody can go on Google and find it. Ayod Barak appeared at the end of March at Chatham House in England and outlined how Israel is going to become Poland and Hungary and authoritarian, and we have to demonstrate constantly in the streets, et cetera, et cetera. So all this is really a plan by a very smart, intelligent person, I must admit. I mean, he didn't get to be chief of command and prime minister for nothing, but he was a failure, basically, at all the jobs he took after being head of uh, Sayeret uh, Matkal. And uh, that's what we're facing now. We're facing political cultural, academic elites who are losing a grip on all the institutions that they controlled over a rising demographic element of right of center, more observant religious Jews, which in a democracy, that's what happens. One man, one vote. By them, it's one man and we get two votes because we have more money than you. Well, that brings up the thought, and we just need to remember this. This government did not get put into place by hook or crook. It was a democratically elected government. They won 64 seats in a 120-seat parliament, so they are in there democratically. But as you just alluded to, and we've talked about this before, you have the non-religious elites, as you might want to call them, and then you have those that uh, people are saying the ultra-religious or uh, the ultra-right wing, and I think it's maybe too simple to call it left versus right, but th that really is what this is about. It's not about democracy. Um, one of the things that I'd like to get your take on, uh, I feel like Maybe the quote-unquote right wing has more of a, a willingness to look realistically at the two-state solution, at using the Palestinian Authority as a peace partner. And uh, I think that that two-state solution is what is being held up as the ideal by the elite. So I think that is creating an area of friction there. And then you also look at the area that we call Judea and Samaria, but the media and the world calls it the West Bank. And this is a 
disputed territory, and I think many of these so-called elites are worried that uh, if they don't have complete control and complete power, then uh, the, the Jewish presence in Judea and Samaria may increase and may be official, may be annexed, and this is something that they're absolutely against. So this battle is not about necessarily democracy. It's more about these two different competing ideas. Would you agree with that sentiment? Well, it's also about that. And I think you're correct in basically everything you said. But I'd like to add something to that. There is a word, if I pronounce it correctly, it's hegemony. When something is hegemonic, it means it controls by having its fingers in almost every pie. Okay? And so up until 1977, this country was ruled by what we call the old god socialist uh, pioneers led by David Ben-Gurion and, and, and Golda Meir and, and, and a few other people. They set up a trade union. They set up printing presses. And all their elites, all their smart people, they went into academia. They went into mus- music. They went into theater. They went into medicine. They went into all sorts of institutions. And the, shall I say, the uneducated masses of the, of the 50s and early, and even into the 60s, right, were from Arab countries. And Israel began to split into the first Israel and second Israel. But now this so-called second Israel is not only also in academic institutions and their judges and their writers and their poets and stuff like that, but they're growing in numbers, and many of them, not all, are what you and I would call basically right-wingers for convenience sake. And they're beginning to outnumber, as we saw in the last election, the people who are voting. And when you lose power, you begin to go crazy. Uh, Even in any household, if, if the husband or wife begins to lose some sort of power in the house, you get very frustrated. Imagine in a country where you've been, you're the person who goes abroad as a diplomat. You're the person who, who uh, has money and goes into industry and gets invited to Finland to make it an investment or to science fairs or congresses and conferences all around the world. You're very, you know, important. And all of a sudden these things are changing and they don't want it to change. And they don't want their children to lose the opportunity of being uh, quote unquote privileged. So this is also at the core of what I think is making these protests almost violent. There have been some instances, not all of it, but very irrational to people who I think who have an open mind and look at it. Winky, as always, I appreciate you adding your context. And it's a complicated situation. It's not something that's easy to understand, but you give us more facts and more things. We certainly do appreciate you helping us to understand that. Well, I have just a couple more quick questions. This week, there was an arrest made on the Temple Mount. Now, we talk about the Temple Mount often on this program. It is a focus of those religious Jews. It is a focus of us and and a focus of the media around the world. Uh, But there was a man arrested for saying a a Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount. Can you tell us about that? Well, actually, he just made a declaration, as I think most of us know, what we call the Shema. Listen or hear, O God, our God is one. You know, our God, the God is our God, and God is one, if that's a general translation. It's like a declaration of faith. And 
up on the Temple Mount, the police do not allow that, especially if it's said out loud. Of course, the, 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 the charge is disturbing the peace, but basically it's the police that about 85 to 90% of the time that are doing disturbing the police because if they wouldn't arrest them or drag them out or make a, a thing, no one would notice. You know, it's like one of those things, don't ask, don't tell in a positive sense, you know, but the police don't realize that. And I'm not going to get into how smart police are all around the world, but, you know, they could they could do a better policy. So, yes, it's still a discriminatory official policy that Jews cannot be on the Temple Mount as Jews respecting the location as a holy site and a religious site. Any overt or, as I said before, out loud prayers or reading psalms or even just moving back and forth, as you sometimes see Orthodox Jews do when they're deep in prayer, it can get you arrested. Well, we do keep tabs on what's taking place on the Temple Mount. It is such an important focus of the world, and, and of course, uh, uh, you and I both as well. One final question, and maybe in the future I'll have you back to do a film review, but there's a major motion picture coming out, a movie uh, with some big American stars, and the movie is called Golda. It's about Golda Meir. You spoke about her previously, and I think it mainly centers around her management of the Yom Kippur War and what took place during those days in a war that many people say basically set the stage for what uh, everything that's taking place in the Middle East right now. If you could, and I, like I said, we'll have you back on. Maybe if you get a chance to see the movie, you could tell us uh, how they portrayed it. But any recollections that you have of Golda Meir as now she's coming uh, maybe more into uh, America's consciousness and that time in history, the 1973, the Yom Kippur War? Well, first of all, she was an American, or, or she wasn't born in America. She was born in Kiev, which is, was then Russian Empire, of course. Now it's Ukraine. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, it's the capital of, of Ukraine and being bombed by Russia. You know how times change. Anyhow, and uh, she went to the Midwest. I'm not sure if it was Minnesota. You're going you're gonna to catch me on this one. I'm not exactly sure. Minneapolis, I'm not quite sure. It had to do with an M. And then she left just after World War One, maybe 1921, 22, and she became a pioneer, and she was a very strong-willed woman. She was a teacher. She was independent, and she made her way way up the ladder of the Jewish community's political uh, institutions and the Histadrut and, and all sorts of things like that. Uh, I only became involved with her as a personal thing, and I, as you said, I haven't seen the film, and it, it does sort of concentrate on the 73 war, but she, in fact, was the first Israel ambassador to Soviet Russia after the state was created. And there's a very famous picture of her. She came out to synagogue. I'm not quite sure if whether it was a Shabbat or the Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, a very famous picture of her. You can just about see her hat, and she's surrounded about 5,000 people standing in a square out there who came out. And that, of course, bothered Stalin all the way around. He, he, all of a sudden, he saw all these Jews coming out, and uh, it, it upset him. So she led a very full life. Of course, politically speaking, there's always criticism. I'm not going to uh, get into that now, but she's a very powerful personality. And I hope the film does do her justice and does the situation justice. 
because as you said, it, it, it set the scene for a lot of things we are suffering or even in, uh, enjoying these days uh, as a result of the victory after 18 days of a real strong, uh, difficult fight in the Sinai Desert especially. Well, maybe, as I said, we'll have you back on the program in the future to let us know how Hollywood portraying uh, Golda Meir, how they did. Well, thank you so much. I love to hear your political perspective, but also your historical perspective. You've been in Israel for quite some time. You alluded earlier to your age. Like I said, that comes uh, with that comes wisdom, and you're able to share a lot of that for us. We appreciate it so much. We look forward to talking to you again soon, Winky. Thank you very much again for having me on, and goodbye to you and our listeners. Great job always, Israel Madad, as uh, his knowledge is unbelievable. When we see how a democracy, the land of Israel, what it's uh, the decisions that political leaders are making today, and I thought it was so interesting that Ehud Barak wanted and made the statement that they want Israel to become a Poland. Uh, to you know, you know, this was their thought process years ago. Very smart man, and I think it only sets up and indicates to us a two-state solution. Two Jewish states, as talked about in Ezekiel chapter 37, and we've talked about that quite a bit. Well, as we continue our thought process on politics, this last week on FOI Equip, Friends of Israel, our friends over there that focus on the Jewish nation and uh, the ministry there, our good friend Paul Scharf taught a class that pertains exactly to this. Paul, welcome to the program today. Thank you, Jimmy. Great to be back with you. Yes, and so you did two live sessions at uh, foiequip.org, correct? They can go mm-hmm. there. People can go there and see these yep. sessions. And you did Patriarchs to Presidents. Tell us about this. Well, Jimmy, uh, this is a, a message that I've developed, or a, a series of messages, Patriarchs and Presidents, How America Has Blessed Israel. Mm. And it was my privilege to present that for FOI Equip, as you mentioned, uh, on the last two Thursday nights. This is a free online class that is conducted on Zoom, and people from all over the world can tune in and uh, unlearn from these classes that are offered. Uh, there's a whole schedule of them that will be upcoming, and they can, as you said, they can watch uh, past editions on a special YouTube channel that they can also get to from foiequip.org. But uh, the theme of my study was just to do a broad survey of American history. Obviously, in two short sessions, we can't cover everything in depth. But I looked at several of our presidents, and I looked at uh, really the historical background of what is built into the foundation of our country, that here we are after 400 years now plus since the pilgrims arrived, that we have had such tremendous support for Israel, really as a hallmark throughout our country. And that's sort of the question that we pursued in this study. Wow. Now, I understand that you talked about the Geneva Bible. I am fascinated with this story. Well, Jimmy, I'm fascinated with the Geneva Bible. Um, It's the Bible of the pilgrims and the Puritans. Uh, Mm -hmm. For those who don't know what the Geneva Bible is at all, it was an English translation. It was translated in Geneva, Switzerland, of course, giving us its name, 
by uh, those who fled during the persecution of Bloody Mary in England. Mm. Uh, Queen Mary, when she was on the throne, was, of course, persecuting those that were sympathetic to the Reformation. Hmm. And so there were Marian martyrs and Marian exiles. And many of the exiles fled Bloody Mary and went to Calvin's Geneva. And there, in the providence of God, one of the great projects that was accomplished was the production of the Geneva Bible. The New Testament and Psalms completed in 1557, and then the Old Testament was completed in 1560. And this is the first complete translation, by the way, Jimmy, of the Old Testament directly from the Hebrew and Aramaic into the English. The Geneva Bible is incredibly important in the development of the translation of the English Bible, as it's been handed down to us, of course, much of their work incorporated all the study of the great father of the English translation, William Tyndale. Now, Jimmy, the other amazing thing about the Geneva Bible is it's the world's first study Bible. Mm. It had study notes at the bottom of the page, much like our modern study Bibles, and this is where the story really gets interesting because beginning in the 1599 edition of the Geneva Bible, there are study notes, especially in Romans chapter 11, that talk about a literal future for Israel. Now, we could go on in much greater length with that whole topic, but just to sum it all up, let me say this. The Geneva Bible is the Bible that built America, and I believe that it's teaching on Israel Uh, which is not completely consistent through all the notes in the whole Bible. But I believe that begins to be a factor that takes root at the dawning of our country in the 17th century, as the Geneva Bible is the Bible that built America through the pilgrims, through the Puritans, and they built into the foundation of our country a love for the people of Israel. Wow, that is amazing. The study notes, those little notes at the bottom that we all read during our Sunday morning services as we're catching up and and following the pastor, it was those notes that helped America's founding fathers to develop an attitude towards Israel where America has been blessed throughout its history. And so that's an amazing process. Yes, it is, Jimmy. And it uh, it's a little known fact that uh, many of the Puritans actually taught premillennialism and a future for Israel, mm. and it's it's something that deserves so much more of our focus than we've given it. But I believe that leads into it plays a role in how our country began to form with a very friendly approach, uh, a desire to bless the people and the nation of Israel. And of course, that blessing is what helps us. By blessing Israel, we're being blessed as a nation. If we ever stop that, right, right, Paul? We lose that blessing if we stop blessing the nation of Israel. Certainly, that is all built, Jimmy, as we know, on the Abrahamic covenant, Mm -hmm. God's promise that he would give Abraham and his descendants a land, and he would give them great descendants and make them a great nation, and that he would make them a blessing to the world, and those who bless the people of Israel are blessed. Those who fail to bless them are cursed. Two different Hebrew Mm. words there for curse in the Mm -hmm. original text. 
and all the world will be blessed through the people of Israel. We know, Jimmy, ultimately that's through the one who personified the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the Messiah, Messiah. Jesus, the Savior of the world. Mm. But that covenant still has implications for the whole nation. It will be fulfilled in its entirety and literally, and those who bless Israel will be blessed. Wow. Uh, Paul, this is fantastic. And I know, like you said, we don't have, you didn't have time to really go in depth on two teaching sessions that you did on foiequip.org. And and people can go there and go more in depth in what you're talking Mm -hmm. about. But uh, let's focus on, you focused on several presidents in your your series. Right. And again, of course, this is just a, a survey. And as you said, and I even told the folks in our class, I want to give you a foundation that you can build on and you could pursue through books I recommended and other resources and and just all the things that are available to us today online, obviously, such as even the presidential libraries and the websites they have uh, for modern presidents, at least. But I surveyed just briefly five presidents and their approach to the Jewish people and the people of Israel, and those were uh, George Washington. Uh, Harry Truman, one that uh, might be an unlikely candidate, Richard Nixon, Mm -hmm. (laughs) my favorite president personally, Ronald Reagan, and uh, our recent president, Donald Trump, who, of course, during his administration Mm -hmm. made much news with regard to his approach and his administration's support for the people of Israel. And the decision that he made to make Jerusalem the capital of the Jewish people, which I believe up the timeline for prophetic history in the future to take place. Paul, I'm I'm intrigued. George Washington, Harry Truman, Richard Nixon, uh, Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump. Will you come back and let's focus on those presidents and tell us why you picked those men? Sure, I'd love to do that, Jimmy. Thank you so much. Folks, you can go to foiequip.org, our friends over at Friends of Israel. uh, We're very close with them, of course. uh, Paul's a uh, a ministry leader with them, and uh, go there. You can find and follow up on this. We're going to follow up with Paul next week on these presidential leaders that Paul has focused on, and that will help us as we understand history past, which is setting the pace for today and setting the pace for history future. Paul, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Jimmy. Always great to be on with you. We have to take a break. And when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy Series, a new one on Ezekiel, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, that last half hour was fantastic, and Paul Scharf talked about presidents that we will focus on in the future, but we actually have a a trilogy that people might be interested in. That's right, Jimmy. Our documentary series, there's three of them, Presidents, Politics, and Prophecies. The first one, and again, like Paul Scharf said, we're talking about how God uses world leaders to bring about his will 
is the USA in Bible prophecy. We talk about the USA, not only where they end up in Bible prophecy, but uh, we talk a little bit about the founding of our country as well. And of course, we finish it off with the last documentary that Dad did, and that is The Destiny of America. These are documentaries on our website. And Jimmy, if you go there, just like last week, everything is half off. You go to our website, go to our bookstore. We'd love for you to get some of these materials. Yes, and that is prophecytoday.com. Well, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, this week we're going to continue looking at God's plan through the ages, and we bring the prophecy of a great man of God to the table today for this study. This man of God that I'm speaking about is the prophet Ezekiel, an ancient Jewish prophet who also was a priest. The book of Ezekiel deals with the past and future prophecies for God's chosen people, the Jewish people. Ezekiel is a unique man with a unique ministry. He is actually the very first street preacher, and though God selected him as a prophet, the Lord makes Ezekiel dumb. Not dumb stupid, but dumb can't talk. This indeed is unique for a prophet of God, and we'll start our study today in Ezekiel chapter 1. Dr. Jimmy D. Young and the Legacy Series. All right, the book of Ezekiel is one of the three most important books in the entire Bible as it relates to Bible prophecy. Now, I'm not trying to put down the minor prophets like Nahum, Zephaniah, Obadiah, Habakkuk, and some of those. I'm not trying to put them down. Everything is God's Word, and so that's very important. But when you start to study Bible prophecy, you can take three books in the Bible and find in these three books every single prophetic event that's going to happen in the future. And it's based upon the fact that there are three members of the human family. And those three members of the human family, and this is key to understanding any approach to studying the Bible. The three members of the human family are Gentiles, Jews, and Christians. For the first 2,000 years of human history, there were only Gentiles upon the earth. And then from that point in Genesis chapter 12, which would be the end of 2,000 years, to Acts chapter 1, the second 2,000 years, there were Gentiles and Jews. And from Acts chapter 2 to Revelation 22, the third member of the human family, Gentiles, Jews, and Christians. Now it's key. All of Scripture is written and is information that we need to know. It's given by God. The Holy Spirit breathed into man everything that was worthy for our understanding of doctrine for instruction in righteousness, etc., etc. You know what 2 Timothy 3.16 says as well as I. But when you start to study, you have to understand these three members of the human family, God has a program for them. He will make sure that program is fulfilled. For example, the first strand of the human family was Gentiles. The book of Daniel starts at a certain time in history. It starts at the times of the Gentiles. And that's when Daniel was taken in to the Babylonian captivity. There in the Babylonian captivity, the Lord used him as a prophet to lay out the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles starting when Daniel was taken into captivity, 605 B.C., and extends all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ. You might remember Jesus in the book of Luke, chapter 21, and verse 24. He said that Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That's what Daniel's about. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7. It's talking about the times of the Gentiles. And the definition for that phrase, any time in history when Gentiles control two things, the Jewish people 
and the city of Jerusalem. And that's why Jesus said, Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And so Daniel is that timeline laid out in history from Daniel's taking into the captivity until Jesus Christ comes back. And that's that in Daniel chapter 2, that stone that hits the image of the man, burst it into pieces, and the stone becomes a mountain, which is representing the kingdom of the Lord. The second group of peoples, the Jewish people, come into existence, Abraham. Abraham would have been basically the first Jew. Howbeit he was a Gentile, but he became the father of the Jewish people, not the father of the Arab people. He became the father of the Jewish people, and his son Isaac, the son of promise, was confirmation of the fact that God had made a promise to Abraham. There in the, uh, the 26th chapter of the book of uh, Genesis, God confirms to Isaac, son of Abraham, the fact that he indeed would be the confirmation of what God had done, giving Abraham the Abrahamic covenant. And then along comes the son Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. There in uh, chapter 13 of the book of Genesis, Abraham is called a Hebrew. His grandson Jacob is called Israel. And then his great-grandson Judah is the first time they use the word Jew, 1 Kings 16, verse 6, and then the peoples became known as Jewish people. So they're either Hebrews, Israelites, or Israelis, and or Jews. And that starts the second strand. And that's from chapter 12 of Genesis all the way over to chapter 1 of the book of Acts. In chapter 2, those Jews and Gentiles who have trusted Christ. Now in chapter 2 of Acts, there were no Gentiles who had trusted Christ because that did not take place for about almost 20 years later at Caesarea when Cornelius was the first Gentile to receive Christ. But when Paul wrote Ephesians, he wrote chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, that only two people would become Christians and they would be Jews or Gentiles. Oh, by the way, that's all the people there are on the earth. And so those people that are Christians, we either have come from a background of being a Jew or a Gentile. And there's no th nothing else. A Messianic Jew is a wrong terminology. And Christians are in existence from the day of Pentecost all the way to the rapture of the church. Before that, there were no Christians. After that, there will be no Christians who become Christians. Christians will live forever. We will be the bride of Christ. And so this is the context in, in which we now look at the book of Ezekiel because Ezekiel is looking at a timeline for the Jewish people. Ezekiel was the leader of the second group of Jews that were taken into the Babylonian captivity. About 597 B.C., the text tells us, if you read the first couple of chapters of the book of Ezekiel, that God took Ezekiel and about 10,000 Jews and they took them over to Babylon. Now, they did not actually go into the city of Babylon. They went out to Tel Aviv. Not the Tel Aviv that you know about here in Israel, but the Tel Aviv that was on the Chabar River, a tributary off the Euphrates River over near what we know as modern-day Iraq. And that's where Ezekiel went. At that time when Ezekiel, and by the way, Ezekiel was not only a prophet, his first office was that of priest. In chapter 1, it says at 30 years of age, he had just qualified to be a priest. Any Jewish man who is from the tribe of Levi, 
a part of the family of the Kohanim, or the priestly family, would study for 28 years, from two years of age to 30 years of age. They would study and basically understand the entire book of Leviticus from front to back and just had it in their mind. That's how they were to understand. First seven chapters of the book of Leviticus would be the sacrificial system laid out for them. In chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, their qualifications had to be met because there were the qualifications for the priesthood. And then from chapter 12 to 27, how they would operate and worship in a temple or a tabernacle at that time, and then later on a temple. Ezekiel had qualified, and he's one of three of the prophets that were also priests. Ezekiel was one, Jeremiah was the second one, and Zechariah was the third one. These men had the unique responsibility of being a priest, but then also serving God as a prophet. And God selects Ezekiel and makes him a prophet. If you have chapter 2, I want to show you something here in chapter 2. He's going to make him a prophet. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. And he said unto me, Son of man, and by the way, that phrase used a number of times in the book of Ezekiel, and it's used 93 times for the purpose of describing Ezekiel. Now, remember in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. But here in the book of Ezekiel, 93 times when, he, when it says Son of Man, he's talking about Ezekiel. Again in verse 3 of chapter 2. And he said unto me, Son of Man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even until this very day. So he selected this priest who's going to make him, he's going to be made a prophet, and he is going to go to the Jewish people. In the context of chapter 2, you'll see, look, they're going to make fun of you, Ezekiel. They're going to laugh at you. They're going to mock you, but don't worry about it. They're a hard-headed people. And he says, I'm going to make your head harder. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces, and thy forehead strong against their foreheads, as an animate Harder than flint have I made thy forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. So he made Ezekiel with a harder head than these hard-headed Jews. And that's not, a, that's not an anti-Semitic statement that I'm making. That's what God said about the Jewish people. And that's why he selected this man uh, to be a prophet against them, uh, to them rather. Look in chapter 3 and verse 17. He calls him a watchman. Now look at the definition of a watchman, verse 17, chapter 3. Son of man, I have made thee a watchman. And I think we would all, should all, at least, eagerly want to be watchmen. Look, notice what it says. I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. What happens is, you hear the word from the Lord, you warn the people of what is coming ahead. Should we all not be watchmen, especially in the day in which we're living? Hear the word of the Lord and warn the people. Let me tell you what he did. Now, this is almost ironic. It almost, to some extent, is funny because he's going to make him an Ezekiel, and I'll show you in a moment he's going to be the first street preacher uh, that was ever involved in ministry, and he tells him he wants them, him to be a prophet to all of his people, but then he makes him dumb, not dumb, stupid, but dumb can't talk. Look here in verse 26 of chapter 3. And I will make thy tongue cleave to the roof of thy mouth, and thou shalt be dumb. And so he tells this man to be a prophet, and then he makes him so he can't talk. And later on you read that all that Ezekiel is going to be able to say 
during a seven-year period of time is what the Lord puts in his heart and mind, and then he opens his mouth to say. That is the extent of what Ezekiel is going to be able to say, yet he's a prophet. Now, if you know anything about a prophet, he's supposed to be pronouncing prophetic truth, or truth of what's the judgment to come going to be. And Ezekiel's going to do that, but in unique ways. He tells him to lay in the street. I said he's going to be a street preacher. He literally tells him to lay in the street. In chapter 4, that's what he tells him. Look at verse 5. For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days. 390 days, so shall thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And then thou shalt have, have accomplished them. Lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity for the house of Judah 40 days. 390 days he lays on his left side in the middle of the street, 40 days on his right side, 430 days he's laying in the street. Now what kind of a prophet is this? He has no capability of speaking unless the Lord loosens his tongue. He's laying in the middle of the street for 430 days. And so he tells this man to be a prophet and then he makes him so he can't talk. And later on you read that all that Ezekiel is going to be able to say during a seven-year period of time is what the Lord puts in his heart and mind, and then he opens his mouth to say. That is the extent of what Ezekiel is going to be able to say, yet he's a prophet. Now, if you know anything about a prophet, he's supposed to be pronouncing prophetic truth, or truth of what's the judgment to come going to be. And Ezekiel's going to do that, but in unique ways. Ezekiel is a unique prophet with a unique prophecy, and he will indeed do his ministry in a unique way. For much of this prophet's ministry, he will lay in the street and become God's first street preacher. And as a prophet, Ezekiel will not be able to speak unless the Lord opens his mouth and speaks through him, and he will be used mightily by the Lord. Next week, we will continue our study of Ezekiel, and we'll see how the Lord uses this man of God. We'll study the secret of the success of Ezekiel's ministry. Please join us there. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Remember, you can find these series at our website, prophecytoday.com. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will look at the two truths that are given to us in God's Word about Christians' involvement in politics, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Christians are being hunted and attacked in Pakistan's third largest city. A Muslim extremist group shared photos of burnt pages from the Quran, and they accused a local Christian family of blasphemy. Yesterday, hundreds of people stormed the predominantly Christian part of Faisalabad. At least five churches and many believers' homes were set on fire. Pray for FMI ministry partners in the city to be wise and faithful as they represent Christ. Meanwhile, believers in Iran faced mounting pressure this summer. Over 50 Christians were arrested when the morality police came back in July. The charges against these believers weren't specified. Media offers a safe way for truth seekers to access the gospel. Transform Iran uses a full range of media to bring the hope of Christ to Iran through TV, radio, social media, and more. Strategic partnerships make it all possible. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries, on Ruth Kramer. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. 
The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Started out the program today with talking about can we have political views outside the considerations of our Christian faith? And the answer is no, we cannot. The Bible gives us two truths, Rick, regarding our stance towards politics and government. That first truth is that the will of God permeates and supersedes every aspect of life. It is God's will that takes precedence over everything and everyone. God's plans and purposes are fixed, and His will is inviolable. What He has purposed, He will bring to pass, and no government can thwart His will. Rick, in fact, it is God who sets up kings and deposes them because the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone He wishes. A clear understanding of this truth will help us to see politics is merely a method Rick God uses to accomplish his will. Even though evil men abuse their political power, meaning it for evil, God means it for good. Working all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Jimmy, the second truth that we have to look at is that we must grasp the fact that our government cannot save us. That's right. Neither Republicans nor Democrats, Donald Trump nor Joe Biden is going to save us. Only God can. We never read in the New Testament of Jesus or any of the disciples expending any time or energy educating believers on how to reform the pagan world of its idolatrous, immoral, and corrupt practices via the government. These apostles never called for believers to demonstrate civil obedience to protest the Roman Empire's unjust laws or brutal schemes. Instead, the apostles commanded the first century Christians, as well as us today, to proclaim the gospel and live lives that give clear evidence to the gospel's transforming power. There's no doubt that our responsibility to government is to obey the laws and be good citizens. That's Romans chapter 13. God has established all authority, and he does so for our benefit to commend those who do right. Paul tells us in Romans 13 that it is the government's responsibility to rule in authority over us, hopefully for our good, to collect taxes and to keep the peace. Where we have a voice and can elect our leaders, we should exercise that right by voting for those who best 
demonstrate Christian principles. I agree, Jimmy. We should be involved. But one of Satan's grandest deceptions is that we can rest our hope for a cultural morality and godly living in politicians and government officials. A nation's hope for change is not to be found in any country's ruling class. The church has made a mistake if it thinks that it is the job of politicians to defend, to advance, and to guard biblical truths and Christian values. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. But you know, you know, the church is unique. God-given purpose does not lie in political activism. Nowhere in Scripture do we have the directive to sp- spend our energy, our time, and our money in governmental affairs. And we have seen this all too often, Rick. A lot of churches, that becomes their mission. Our mission lies not in changing the nation through political reform, but in changing hearts through the word of God. When believers think the growth and influence of Christ can somehow be allied with governmental policy, they corrupt the mission of the church. Our Christian mandate is to spread the gospel of Christ and to preach against the sins of our time. Only as the hearts of individuals that are changed by Christ will that culture begin to reflect that change. I love the fact that you're saying our Christian mandate. It reminds me of something that dad used to say, keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is sharing and spreading the gospel of Christ. Believers throughout the ages have lived and even flourished under antagonistic, repressive pagan governments. This was especially true of the first century believers who, under merciless political regimes, sustained their faith under immense stress. They understood that it was them, not their governments, who were the light of the world and the salt of the earth. They adhered to Paul's teaching to obey their governing authorities, even to honor, respect, and pray for them, like it says in Romans 13, 1 through 8. More importantly, they understood that as believers, their hope resided in the protection that only God supplies. The same holds true for us today, Jimmy. When we follow the teachings of the scriptures, we become the light of the world as God has intended for us to be. Yes, and that is Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Rick, political entities are not the savior of the world. The salvation for all mankind has been manifested in Jesus Christ. God knew that our world needed saving long before any national government was ever founded. He demonstrated to the world that redemption could not be accomplished through the power of man. Peace of mind, contentment, hope, and joy, and the salvation of mankind are provided only through Jesus' death and resurrection. Rick, I, I do like what you said, and, and uh, our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, always taught this, and we're continuing on that message. Keep the main thing the main thing. For us as believers, we have two responsibilities, to give God the glory in everything that we do, to give him the honor, and then to try to live a life telling them of God's plan of redemption for mankind. And Rick, I think as we try to do that, 
it is so very important that this message continues on as we try to educate the body of Christ. I certainly believe it, Jimmy. And again, we are not saying to put your head in the sand when it comes to politics. We certainly keep an eye on current events because they're setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And we need to know what our political leaders believe, especially when it intersects with our biblical interests, because we need to know who to vote for. But again, like we said at the beginning of the program, let's not rely on Democrats. Let's not rely on Republicans. Let's not rely on Donald Trump or whatever politician. Let's rely on God. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Let's remember what Revelation chapter 17 says. It is God who puts in the hearts of man these leaders to accomplish his will. Rick, great program today. As always, I look forward to being with you next week and we'll continue. And I'm looking forward to an opportunity to discuss the four major trends of Bible prophecy next week with David Dolan. I will be here, Jimmy. I look forward to it as well. Folks, with everything that we've seen today on the program, all the current events that are taking place, examining them in the light of God's prophetic word, we can't help but say that the rapture of the church is not very far away. Until that moment comes, let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.